the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. As we head into hour two, this is a very special hour, at least for me, and a very privileged hour, at least for me. Two great friends and two great colleagues in the studio on some of the most important things that any uh, society in ours, particularly just now, can discuss. If uh, we were talking about uh, the abuse of language in the previous hour, we're going to talk about self-abuse a little bit and how to get over and around it and prevent it and... uh, Save yourselves uh, from it in this hour. We try and do this every ho- holiday season, uh, usually uh, with either Steve Moak Jr., uh, my colleague and co-founder of the Coalition for Youth Drug Abuse Prevention, the stopstartshere.org, or Jeff Taylor, who many of you know, who also co-founded Coalition for Youth Drug Abuse Prevention with us. Uh, Steve Moak has his own podcast, The Unlicensed Counselor. You can get it on Apple Podcasts or really on any podcast platform, and it's well worth listening to every week. And he had uh, Jeff and I on his show um, taping earlier today. I guess it'll probably launch tomorrow. And um, as long as we were all together, I decided if one is good, two is better. So it's a delight to welcome into the studio both Jeff Taylor and Steve Moak. Uh, we hat tip our other co-founders, um, Hugh Hallman, Ashley Reagan, and Steve, different Steve. But um, holiday season is, uh, while we're with the coalition based mostly on prevention, what we do every holiday season is we like to do a, a little bit of a, of a call-in show and a tip show for those that are in early or any kind of recovery um, because it's a great time of relapse for those that have become the miracles that you both have become. I was saying earlier on the podcast, you both are miracles, miracles to me and miracles to our community and miracles to your families and friends because the chances that someone who succumbs into a life of addiction that they will ever obtain or get recovery are very narrow. And if they do... If they're the fortunate ones, I don't say lucky, if they're the fortunate ones that do get a chance at recovery and rehab, the ability to hold on to it and maintain it is another challenge. And statistics are anywhere from 50 to a much larger majority of people in recovery do relapse. And it doesn't have to be. And it can be uh, fatal. And it can be less than fatal, but still very damaging. So you two are miracles because you're both in long-term recovery and you have a lot to say to our community at this time of year particularly when the challenges are so great. Financial, uh, familial, friendship, holiday, advertising. I was making the point earlier, it's an odd time of year for those that know 12-step rooms. They're a little lighter attended after Halloween until New Year's. A little bit. Not all of them, but in the aggregate. And relapse and substance abuse deaths, overdoses, what we call drug poisonings, rise from October to January. So what more important could we have than the two of you in studio to help 
our audience in the larger community talking about how not to go down that path with the white rabbit. Steve Moak and Jeff Taylor uh, will take your calls at 602-508-0960. You were kind of the moderator on your podcast, Steve Moak Jr., earlier. So why don't we start with your story since Jeff started his on the podcast, and then we'll turn to Jeff's in a moment. But why don't you tell your story a little bit? <clears throat> you know, thinking about these days. Th- this is, first off, thanks for having. As always, Seth, just appreciate it. You know, it, it's, it's love being here, Jeff. Always great to work with you as well, too. Uh, my story is a story of a guy who shouldn't be here, right? Shouldn't be here talking to you about drug and alcohol addiction and how it changed my life. But here I am at 44 years old. You know, grew up here, been in the Valley for over 30 years, went to Cocopop Middle School, Chaparral High School, graduated eventually from Arizona State University. But really, you know, my journey started in middle school, as many do. And and really, to the parents out there, start talking about these things in middle school, because that's where we're seeing first age of use is often in middle school. And that's where mine was, right in eighth grade when I got in my parents' liquor cabinet. I don't think I had a real reasoning other than I had some friends who were kind of, you know, drinking a little bit and experimenting. And I remember getting into the liquor cabin and pouring, I didn't know what a screwdriver was at the time, but mixing orange juice and vodka together and then replacing the vodka with water as well, too. And I remember just drinking that and laying down and watching a fan spin. And that was my first exposure. And I don't even know why I drank by myself, but maybe that was maybe that was a warning early on. But, you know, as some things happened in my life and I progressed into high school, I was captain of the basketball team, captain of the track team. I mean, very engaged, right? People liked me, popular, those types of things. But went off to Chaparral High School, was in student government, vice president of my class, and I was on a student government retreat over at the Dell, actually, in Coronado Island uh, my freshman year. I remember it vividly, being in a hotel room with these other senior girls who were beautiful, Palmatier, and some of the other cool, quote-unquote, uh, upperclassmen and sitting in a room and there was a bottle of schnapps going around which I started taking some pulls off of and I remember at the time I didn't know it was a joint but kind of a funny looking cigarette going around right and when it got to me you know those they said here those girls could have offered me anything and I would have said yes and that was when I I, I first tried drugs was, was smoking weed in Coronado Island on a student government retreat right and that was just the start of my story and a lot of things started at that point in time and it's really when I look back at it it's like wow what could have gone down this path or that path and just that little point in time and how it really changed my life. How many years of your life do you think you lost to addiction? That's a great question. Let's do the let's do some quick math. So that was freshman year of high school up until came back from the University of Colorado, you know, in need of dire help basically my sophomore year so about 6 years there. I uh, had one, my first attempt at recovery lasted about three and a half years before I accidentally, and this was truly an accident, had ordered a Red Bull at a bar. They gave me a Red Bull vodka, and I drank it. And then that took out the next 10 years of my life. So I'd say about 16 years, you know, that's been, I'm 44 years old, so 16 years of my life has been impacted dramatically. So that's Je- significant. Jeff, your story is so unique, too, and I'm wondering if you'll just forgive me just because we'll do a commercial break. I'm going to stick with Steve for a moment, and we'll come back, and then we'll give you the full platform for your story as well, Jeff Taylor. Let me stick with you for a few moments, Steve. What lessons immediately and up front would you give to people right now who are early in their sobriety? Because early sobriety, you know, the first two days are the toughest, first three days are tough. You get a week, you get two weeks, you get three weeks, you get two months, you get three months. That's all early stuff. Hell, you get a year or two years. And, you know, a snap of a finger, a family event, a holiday – 
you know, you can blow it in a second. What what would you what would you suggest to people or what they think about or what they should do this time of year? It's party season, right? I mean, we've got Christmas, we just came through Thanksgiving, we're going into New Year's. You know, it's okay to say no to some things. If you feel like you're on some shaky ground right now or maybe not all the way cemented, it's okay to say no. Including going back to visit family. I, I think it is, really. Honestly, like if you are if your anxiety is getting to a point or you're not maybe as rock solid as you think you'd like to be, it's okay to bow out politely. Now I'm not advocating for isolation, all that type of stuff. I mean there's a balance right. here, right? But I really think that it's okay to say, Look, I love you guys, I really want to hang it. I'm just you know, I'm just not quite ready to go all the way back into this right now. And I think people get pressured into this, and then you get into these uncomfortable situations. Anxiety, emotions are running high, and not everybody's quite ready for that. That's right. Yeah, because a one-day moment with your family or one-day experience with your family, if that is the trigger that does it for you, you know, there are other. there's 365 days a year, right? right. You can see them another time and or at a better time in your life. Right now we're about saving your life. It's just protect what you have. It's a fragile, fragile foundation early. And I'm not saying be scared, but let's do be smart. What do you tell people? We talked a little bit about this earlier, too. What do you tell people who um, who are embarrassed to go to parties and socialize, you know, because they're going to order a, a glass of water or something? I, I, I've I've. In 2023, it's it's things have changed a little bit. Yeah. I'm kind of, I don't know, it kind of makes me smile that, that sober's kind of cool, yeah. right? And that's new, right? It was sober. It's like, oh, he used to have a problem. He can't. Da, da, da. Sober, the sober curious movement. There's a lot of NA, you know, options that are out there. Sober is kind of thing. Maybe it's Huberman. Maybe it's Peterson. That you know, people that have kind of talked about alcohol and how it's just from a health perspective not the greatest thing in the world. I think it's kind of cool that it has shifted, you know, in terms of culturally how alcohol can be viewed. So I think that's really neat. The next thing, which is also ties into going to the parties of like, people don't care as much, right? People don't care as much. I, I don't think they care what you're drinking. They don't. And by the way, they care about themselves and how they look. And you give that, <laughs> give that party an hour and a half and nobody's going to care. <laughs> give it you an hour and a half and right? no one cares. No one's going to care. Taylor, we'll pick Taylor up off the floor. He's laughing when we come back from the break. Steve Moak Jr. is my guest. As is Jeff Taylor. We're from um, the stopstopshere.org. If you want to help us out with prevention in the season of giving, we are a nonprofit. We will happily uh, take your donations and put it to good use, and we can talk more about that project too. And we're happy to take your calls, questions, advice, input 602 508 0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Steve Moak Jr. is my guest in studio along with Jeff Taylor. 602 is the number if you'd like to call in, ask their advice, ask their thoughts, or share anything you'd like to. Uh, we're trying to uh, help people and provide a little bit of thought and advice uh, on tips on how to not be tipsy uh, during the holiday season, a high-risk time for relapse. For those who are maintaining their sobriety, Jeff, uh, we heard Steve's story. Uh, the contours of yours are a little different. You've shared it before. If you want to give us a compressed version, it's always, always moving. I don't know if you guys caught this, but the high school Steve went to, they go to the Hotel Del Coronado. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> it's a true I think, story. Yeah, I, know. I knew I was going to get Some of for us that. go to McDonald's. <laughs> right? I think we, we were at the Motel 6 on There's 27th Avenue. We'll come back to. Okay, go ahead. So, uh, you know, I always appreciate Steve's story because he's very honest and forthright about, you know, his relapse, which was 
you know, it, we make light of things, you know, in long-term recovery, but it was devastating. You know, any relapse is devastating to the individual. If I'm working with somebody who relapses, I don't give them a hard time because they're too busy beating themselves up. Mm -hmm. And we need to get away from that Mm -hmm. because relapse is not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. A lot of parents may pay for their child to go to treatment. They get out and they, you know, on a weekend, they go to a party because of peer pressure and they end up drinking and maybe going back to their drug of choice if it wasn't alcohol. And they think it's the end of the world. And I'm like, it's not the end of the world. What can you learn from this? What happened? How can you avoid it in the future? You know, this is a learning experience and it's a learning curve. You know, recovery is not easy. It's one of the hardest. I don't know about you, Steve, but it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Oh, absolutely. You know, mine was more narcotics and narcotics robbed me of my ability to care. So how do you get a person to care that doesn't care? And with me, as I took the pathway of the criminal justice system. You know, and they really cared more about me than I did. And the criminal justice system was very effective with me. I was breaking the law. I was doing drug-motivated crime, and I need to suffer a consequence. But a consequence alone doesn't help. What I found out early on is when I first got arrested and, and held on to was in Flagstaff. And there were 36 people in our cell block. 35 of them had a drug or an alcohol problem. 35 out of 36. The, the one guy that was in there was importing endangered reptiles. Mm-hmm. He, he was kind of an odd guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of interesting to talk yeah. to him. <laughs> so I realized that we're really managing our drug problem at the time, which we're going back now almost 30 years. So we're 1994, and we managed you know, a drug and alcohol problem with incarceration, mainly alcohol through DUIs. We have some of the toughest DUI uh, statutes in the nation here in Arizona, and also, you know, on our, our drug and drug-motivated crimes. So I was getting out and being released with the same drug problem that I was arrested with. And I didn't start off that way. It was a long downward spiral. Just to back up, I grew up not too far from your studios here. Uh, I went to Central High School. Uh, great, great group of friends that were very tight to this day. A uh, lot of support there. Good family. I was the last of six children. Big family. You know, Everybody in our family uh, at some point in their life was an extremely high achiever. Uh, The bar was set pretty high. And I think that when I look back, I have to look at addiction through the lens of trauma. Things that are traumatic really were not seemingly traumatic to me early on. My first really bump in the road was my parents were divorced when I was five. So my father lived here in Phoenix. My mother lived in San Diego. So I lived with my mother till I was 10. And my father remarried when I was 10 here in Phoenix. I came home from school, no warning whatsoever, came home from school and my bags were packed. And in a couple hours, I was on an airplane to Phoenix. And I woke up the next day in a new school, a new family that I really hadn't met. I'd met them briefly. Um, You know, four new kids in the house. My brother and I made six. And that's, looking back, a traumatic experience. I thought it was kind of an adventure. Man, I'm on an airplane with my dad, who I love dearly, and, you know, I liked his new wife, and and I liked the family, but still, a whole new family. I was sleeping on a cot. You know, we had a, a small place, and my brother and I show up, and then I get up and go to school, whereas the prior day, I'm in, I'm in one school in San Diego, and the next day, I'm in a school here. 
And that's where I met my group of friends. A lot of the friends that I hold dearly today were in my fourth grade class when I walked in. So I can't really, you know, nail down of why reality wasn't good enough for me because reality was pretty good. But that was that was a traumatic event. And then tragically, um, you know, both Steve and I are athletes. I was an athlete, too. I went down to University of Arizona to play football and was injured and given narcotic pain medication. Now, that was the first experience I had with a mind-altering substance, and it was prescribed to me by a doctor. Now, we know a lot about that today, but we didn't know the dangers, really knew the dangers of opiates and addiction back then. I didn't get addicted, but I started training my brain that whatever's in this pill, whatever substance it is, it works for me. So I'm worried about am I ever going to play football again? What's going to happen? You know, am I going to – is this going to affect my ability to have a scholarship in the future? All sorts of things that are bothering me. I'm on crutches. I'm trying to get around this huge campus. And then I took a pill and then I get this false sense of well-being. False. So drugs lie to you in the beginning. Uh, Alcohol lies to you in, in the beginning. Again, nothing in your life changes. You have a drink. You take a drug. And everything seems better in the beginning. Otherwise, you wouldn't get addicted. If it made things worse in the beginning, then, you know, you wouldn't go down that, that pathway. Some people advance very quickly. I advanced slowly. I didn't get addicted, but it was parked in my brain that this works for me. And then I had my second experience of trauma, and that was during this time, about a two-week period where I'm taking narcotic pain relievers. Uh, my mom uh, takes her own life, commits suicide, my, my birth mother in San Diego. And it was just one of those suicides that will, in my mind, never really be explained. Oftentimes, people leave behind a note. And this is not a person that I saw as one that was struggling in life. She hid it very well from me. And I just wake up one day, and it's like she takes her own. I mean, why didn't she call me? Why did you know you start blaming yourself? I could have saved her, whatever, no note. And now I'm grieving and I take a pill. And then I'm not grieving so much. You know, I, I get this, again, false optimism, you know, and that really didn't have the chance to grieve her death. I'm not even sure that I've even, even properly grieved it to this day because I just started pouring mind-altering substances on top of it to medicate the way I felt. I just wanted to feel better. Got out of school, um, had a very, you know, uh, I would say, a very rewarding career, whether, you know, that's monetarily or just success in the community. But I had a career as a, as a securities trader for the next nine years and really kind of had a meteoric rise, you know, in the firm that I worked for. And then it all came to a halt when I was 29 because it's really glorified gambling. It's a very high-pressure uh, position. And it was a very enabling business. And I just went down this road of, you know, in the end, perdition. You ended up living under a tree. Mm-hmm. You were homeless. Yeah. Steve Moak and Jeff Taylor and I will be right back. I want to pick up on all these threads. And if you'd like to call in 602-508-0960, I did take special exception in noting that you said you and Steve were athletes. Mm-hmm. There is a third person at this <laughs> Tennis is a sport. Just FYI. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Jeff Taylor and Steve Moak Jr. are my guests. Six zero two five zero eight 
if you'd like to call in and speak with them. We're talking about maintaining sobriety through the holidays, and these are the experts, you guys, you gentlemen, uh, with your sobriety and your experience help an awful lot of people. Uh, I tend to work more on the prevention side, and we can talk a little bit about that. I wanted to drill down on things you both spoke about in the story and experience you shared in the previous two segments. Work with me through this issue. Um, I have said and described you both as miracles, and one of the reasons I've done that, aside from what I said earlier, is that most people who go through, initiate a, a, a drug addiction and then become addicted, drug or alcohol, most of them don't actually um, get and maintain long-term sobriety. Once they do, that's a miracle. You guys are the outliers, so I don't want people to think, I can end up like Steve and Jeff. That's not usually the end of the story of addiction. That's why I say you guys are miracles. You're exceptions. You know, a lot of people do it, but they're exceptions to the general rule of those who have addictions. They mostly don't. Fair enough. Anybody can get sober. The hard part is staying sober. There you go. So and now, sobriety is measured in years. There you go. So you had made the point accurately enough that relapse is not the end of the world. Agreed. Relapse is not the end of the world. But it's also not necessary, and it can be the end of the world. I've always liked the expression that the reason Denny's serves breakfast 24 hours a day is because you can always start your day again. But it also is not a good idea to gamble with. You don't have to go through relapse. No one knows that better than you, right, Steve? Yeah, I wish I didn't have to do it. That day, I remember it so clearly. I was out on a date. We went to a party. Because, again, you're allowed to go to parties when you're sober, right? Like uh, You're allowed to have fun. In fact, it should be tons of fun. Otherwise, what's the point, right? And we went to a party, and I ordered a, a Red Bull, which I would do. Right, And they served it to me in a glass, which I thought, okay, whatever. And it was a Red Bull vodka. I took a sip. No sirens went off. No balloons or spotlights hit me. But, I mean, that instant, Seth, like, it all came back. Everything in three and a half years, I did not wake up that morning setting out to drink whatsoever. And I mean that as sincerely and honestly as I can say it. But that single night, that that switched my brain. Right, It went back and said, okay, oh, well, I forgot about this. I kind of like it. And then tried to manage it slowly and control it slowly and started to tell people I had a drug problem. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a drinking problem, mm-hmm. right? And that's the story I told myself and told others to try and get people to believe me so that I could then continue to drink. Jeff, that uh, that's how delicate this thing, sobriety, is and the fake sense of well-being you can get, right? We forget once you reinitiate or once you start up again or relapse, I suppose, that's what the drug or the alcohol will do to you. It will make you forget all the great feeling you used to have for the past weeks, months, years, and you're right back to where you began. Yeah, that's the, that's the devil of it. And, you know, and the title of, the, of this segment is to talk about, you know, some tools that yeah. people can yeah. um, utilize. Yeah. And I didn't have any tools in the beginning. I had no idea. You know, I just didn't. That's why I need to rewire my brain, get treatment, get some tools, 12-step meetings. People for decades before the industry took off on treatment, people for decades got sober in 12-step meetings. Yeah. You know, very successfully. Yeah, for free. By the way, for free. A buck for coffee, maybe. Yeah, right? and that was, you know, there, there's no dues or fees. And I used to always say there's no dues or fees, but they have a basket to put them in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Volunteer. Yeah. Right. So, you know, some things that I I wanted to talk about what the pandemic and isolation did to normal people. Please. Or maybe normal people. Who knows? But it caused 
we're still suffering, you know, what the wreckage is from that type of isolation and fear. Mm-hmm. You know, we were bombarded with fear and isolation. But let's talk about what it did to the recovery community. So people became, you know, very dependent on their 12-step and their connectivity. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of relapse is connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, if you stay isolated during the, the holiday season uh, and don't go and do anything social or you don't have balance in your life and you're isolated, you're in really you're high, high risk. risk. Yeah. You know, you're high risk. So, you know. Don't isolate. Don't isolate. And don't think Facebook and Instagram and social media is community. This was a short segment. Can we pick up on that very big topic when we come back? And you need to be in front of another human there you being. Go. There you go. Yes. And, yeah, I, I, can, I can be political on that issue, but I won't. But I do <laughs> want to talk about what it means not to isolate and how social media is not socializing. Mm-hmm. We'll do that when we come back with Steve Moak Jr. and Jeff Taylor. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Steve Moak Jr. and Jeff Taylor are my guests. We're uh, all three of us, uh, plus two who can't, three who can't be with us today, who aren't with us today. We're all part of the Coalition for Youth Drug Abuse Prevention, among other things. Um, the StopStartsHere.org, our prevention website. Um, Steve, Jeff was making the very valid, very good point, series of points in the previous segment, that one of the high-risk categories one can put themselves in in their sobriety, especially this time of year, is isolating. And uh, kind of an interesting needle to thread because earlier we were saying, yeah, but you also don't have to go to events, travel to see family if you know those two will be um, high risk for your sobriety or threats to your sobriety if you're not ready for it. Talk about isolation. I was saying, you know, if you do have to abstain from going to families or friends' houses or former acquaintances, by the way, former party friends, let us say, um, the substitute is um, is not going to be 12 or 14-inch or even 4-inch screens. That is not the substitute. I, I think there's a level of honesty that you have to have with yourself, right, when you do this. Am I not going to this situation because I want to sit and throw a little pity party for myself and self-loathe and things like that? Or am I not going because I just feel like I might be overwhelmed and anxious? Stress. Maybe stress, yeah. right? Maybe I haven't, you know, mended all the things with my family. So I do think there's just a certain level and you got to be rigorously honest with yourself and kind of assess why or why you may not be going to these things. Because I do say that statement with a grain of salt, knowing that the isolation, the loneliness, I mean, you know, our the disease of addiction and things just wants to get you in a hotel room, you know, doing drugs and drinking. So you just got to really be honest. Jeff, talk about the physiology of this. You know this very well, too. There's an old expression or acronym of hungry, angry, lonely, tired are the four things you halt. Lonely is part of it. But blood sugar is important. Uh, anger management is important. Exhaustion is important. You know, the thing about addiction is you think you're feeling better. You're using drugs. You said they lie to you. They give you a false sense of well-being, I think, was the expression you used. It is a false sense. There is real well-being. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a that. false sense because nothing in my life changed. Mm-hmm. My mom was still dead. Mm-hmm. You know, that didn't change. I was still worried about, you know, I was still getting around on crutches, behind in school, uh, worried about whatever, play sports again, what's going to happen to my future scholarship, things like that. 
Um, then I take a pill. Obviously, nothing changed except the pill. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch what you just said about anger. Uh-huh. So anger is the number one reason for relapse. Okay. They call it resentment. Okay. And resentment leads to all sorts of excuses to get high uh-huh. or to drink. Mm-hmm. So this person was unfair to me. My ex-wife or my wife is unfair to me. I have a lousy boss, and I'm angry about it, and, it, and it's unfair. And so I am now going to drink because or use drugs because life is being unfair to me. Okay? Well, let's think about that for a moment. I'm taking poison for me, mm-hmm. hoping you, the person I hate, is going to get sick. Yeah, right. Might as well take a gun and point it at yourself to shoot me. Yeah, yeah. to shoot another person. Right. right. So anger is something that I used to pray about early on, and I would just say, God save me from being angry. You know, I can't get angry. I can't go down that path. I'm not saying not to have your feelings in that you can be, you know, what do you do with anger? Mm-hmm. And there's a healthy way to go with anger. And, and my way was I'm going to change the world. And then what I learned in very wise counselor that I had, who genius to this day, I'm still afraid of her, by the way, because she knows me better than I do, <clears throat> is that she said the world's not getting any better out there. We all know that it's not. It's, it's getting you know, more violent. Uh, drugs are cheaper, more powerful. Uh, social media is, is infecting the, really the minds of our youth and everyone else. And I'm going to change that or the only power that I have, which I don't have power to do that. The power that I do have is how do I react to it? Mm -hmm. And you can react in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And how I react to things is different. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the point that I made about isolation is, is then your mind starts justifying as your mind did. You said, I didn't have an alcohol problem. I had a drug problem. So now your mind is, and I had a very wise person in recovery that knew how to stay sober. I didn't. I just keep it real simple. He knew how to do it. I didn't. So I would listen to him. And he would tell me a couple of things on how life is fair. He would say, if you want, (laughs) it's kind of stupid, but if you want fair, go to 19th Avenue and McDowell in October and go to the state fair because that's the only fair you're going to get in life. Mm -hmm. And the second part um, about anger was and and getting into that spiraling justification in my mind is he said, it's easy. Just don't listen to yourself. Mm -hmm. Listen to me. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're trying to make a decision on going to a party, don't make the decision yourself. Call me. By the way, that's an undervalued piece of advice. There are people who are willing to help. Every part of a 12-step program has sponsors that you can rely on, and it may take you a few experiments to find the right one, or you two, who have always extended your hand to help, and I can always put people in touch with you two. You don't have to listen to yourself or someone who doesn't have your best interests at heart, right? Oh, 100%, especially early on. Yeah. I mean, our brains, the, the damage that we've done from the drinking and the drugs and just the physiology of how long it takes to rewire and kind of get back to that homeostasis, you know, is significant. So really, that is the point of the sponsor. That is the point. And again, I always like to extend it out to it could be clergy. It could be your, your aunt or uncle. It could be just a close friend as well, too. Just somebody that you need to bounce that idea off that may have sound good to that sick mind and kind of go, eh, am I thinking this through right? On that, can I talk a moment about this issue that people say they're afraid to talk to people about it? We've 
touched on it ever so briefly, briefly, and the word we're talking about here is stigma. I have to tell you, I think that is so far in the rearview mirror. I think people are understanding now. I don't think the stigma that people perceive exists exists. I think people would much rather you open up to them about yourself. I would think in every other area of life where self-expression runs right, you can do this one too. Do you disagree? Unless it's my family. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, you know there the word family outliers. is way overrated in, in, you know, my definition of what normal people's definition yes, is of I family. Understand. And, and that's oftentimes with family, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you have a high functioning, you know, oh, you have so much potential, you know. I'm, well, I hate I, to say it, but there are sometimes people who love you and there is your family and they're not always the same group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I mean yeah. that sincerely. So I, I wanted to bring up, I apologize while I'm sitting here looking at my phone, yeah. but this is a priority yeah. for me to your point yeah. and to what Steve and I do is here's a text that I just got. Hey, want to do a rescue mission of a former foster kid who's on meth and wants to go to rehab? And my answer just now was always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Right. Never say no. Right. And that is the 12th step in the 12-step recovery program is that you help people that are still suffering. Right. Best way to get out of your own head is to help someone with mm-hmm. a problem. <clears throat> we'll come back when, uh, after this break with Steve Jeff Taylor. I want to thank Steve Moak Jr. and uh, Jeff Taylor, part of our team. The three of us are half the team of uh, the Stop Starts Here, stopstartshere.org. We are a nonprofit that is doing something unique in prevention. If you want to help us out, we're happy to, uh, happy to have your help. So I want to end on a word, uh, with a word on prevention, if I can. Uh, we all in this room, in this studio, know um, that a lot of people who haven't done the kind of study and deep dives that we all have done here kind of categorize drugs as hard and soft, and there are a great many temptations with our youth. Um, and a lot of parents are under the misperception that the soft drug, quote-unquote soft drug of marijuana, can be used at home, can be used safely. We're getting this message of safe use. I would just like you both each to take a minute and say a word about the dangers of allowing your child to use marijuana. And I'll start with you, Mr. Moke. Sure. Let me be very clear. You can 100% be addicted to marijuana. It impacts your sleep, impacts your attitude, impacts uh, all the different areas of your life. And I challenge you, if you don't believe me, then stop doing it for a day or two and see exactly what your life looks like. Don't believe that it's not addictive. We've been sold a bill of goods, and it's just not accurate, right? The stuff that we're smoking now is not the same stuff. I know you've heard that before, but I'm telling you, you can be addicted. I worked inside a treatment center. I was a daily marijuana user for 20-plus years. You can be addicted, and you will be addicted to marijuana if you're smoking it on a regular basis. Pretty clear. Jeff? We live in a world of spin, and we have a very well-funded industry that, after legalization, first it was for uh, pharma, you know, it was for health reasons, medical marijuana, and then it expanded, and we just kind of softened the blow of the marijuana really infecting our communities because you have a messaging agent out there that is driven by a multi-multi-billion-dollar agency of selling our agency of companies that are selling a highly addictive, mind-altering substance. I don't need to see a study. I, I don't care about data or studies on this because I see it. And my experience is with the largest provider of drug treatment in the United States, by far, they're free programs. This is a free 
program. Where do you get that? And we are seeing younger and younger people that are coming in with severe mental illness. So high-grade THC on the developing brain causes severe, and we're not talking about co-occurring, you know, like, you know, bipolar disorder. We are talking about deep psychosis, Um, you know, people that are hearing voices, they're losing touch with reality. So I push back on the marijuana industry as, as all three of us did. Seth, you did much more than we did. And you defeated it the first time around. Then they came to Arizona with 20-some million dollars, and they bought votes. Thank you both. One of my favorite scholars is Dr. Bertha Madras, Madras over at Harvard. She says that drugs aren't dangerous because they're illegal. They're illegal because they're dangerous. We revere the three-pound organ of our brain differently than any other part of our body. It is the repository of our humanity the place that enables us to write poetry and to do theater. This is not a war on drugs. This is a defense of our brains. Gentlemen, thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.